Hi, and welcome to Power in the City. This is a podcast about the everyday and on the ground ways that people are responding to the climate emergency. I got really lucky. You know, I managed to get jobs straight out of uni, which was amazing. And then obviously something that helps the environment as well, which is kind of like a bonus. So what is a green job? That's a very good question. I think it's anybody who is delivering something that um, delivers an environmental improvement. I think um, young people are keen to sort of make a difference as well. Brick laying carpentry, stone masonry, it's been around for thousands of years. Yeah. So that's why they call them biblical skills. I have to say we have a really, really happy workforce, really work as a team. The first season is based in Oldham and has five episodes. My name is Hannah. And I'm Brit. Hannah, do you actually know that Oldham is not a city? Hi, Britt. Hi, Alex. So here we are again, and this time I get to be the host. Yeah, how did you get promoted this quickly? I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm charting a meteoric rise here on the, uh, <laughs> the Power in the City podcast, clearly. I feel quite honoured, though. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Power in the City. And what are you bringing us today, Britt? Um, well, so we've been talking about um, zero and low carbon activities, you know, all over this podcast season um you know stuff that we already do like in our homes and in travel but we haven't actually talked about work oh yeah of course really important you know i read that in the uk we spend an average of 25 percent of our waking hours at work oh man that is depressing isn't it <laughs> yeah well you know I thought um, that definitely makes it an important activity in terms of zero carbon um, to look into. And then, um, you know, we also read and hear so much about green jobs at the moment. So I thought, let's look into this. You know, what exactly is a green job? Like, how do we get them? What motivates people who do work like that? Um, what might be the conditions we want to create so that lots of people can benefit from these opportunities? And I have to admit that this subject has become so interesting. We went down so many like loops and rabbit holes and had so many brilliant interviews that I ended up actually making this last episode of our Oldham season into two parts. Oh, wow. Back to back bonanza. Yes. But um, let's start at the beginning. As always, we uh, started by talking with people on the ground in and around Oldham. In this case, uh, people who work. I think when I first got the job, my dad held a party for me. One was purely because obviously I was, I finally got a job straight out of uni. You know, it was, it was a really big thing. And it's like my first proper official job, apart from like Mackey's, McDonald's and like restaurant waitering. And I think they were really proud of me and I'm grateful for it. Hey, that's Moomin, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So um, Moomin works with us, so with Alex and me at Calvin Co-op. Hi, I'm Moomin. I'm 21 and I'm based in Oldham. I am a software engineer working at Carbon Co-op and I'm working on our open energy systems. Moomin works on our nerd team. I think my main passion is just computers. I've always worked around computers. I've done computer things since I was probably about 10, 11-ish. Like, I, I was just, as soon as I touched a piece, uh, like my first computer, I just knew it was what I wanted to do. <laughs> See, I told you. 
nerd team. Moomin even built his, uh, like he built his own computer at home from scratch. So I finished school doing like literally every computer subject I could. Computer science, design, technology, engineering, and IT. And then I went into college because uh, with doing math and science, because at that time, I wasn't completely sure if I was actually going to be doing as a profession. Like, I didn't know exactly which way I wanted to go. It was either pro- uh, programming or mechanical engineering. So I just wanted to give myself something to, you know, lean back on, support myself a tiny bit. So for college, I went to Oldham Sixth Form, where I did A-level maths with BTEC Science. Um, and then I went to Manchester Metropolitan to do software engineering for three years. Moomin found the job with us pretty much straight out of uni. He applied and to his delight, he got an interview and the job. And that's when his dad held him a party. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Um, Moomin says he likes working with us, but then of course he has to say that to me. Um, but it sounded quite genuine. It's an amazing team. If I ever get stuck, I need some help. Everyone's there to support me. I really like it. What does he work on? Yeah, what does he work on? <laughs> no, I actually know that. So from my understanding, he writes the software for, for an online tool that we will offer, which allows people to work out what they have saved with energy efficiency measures in their house. So it can be just savings after you do retrofit, or it could just be savings in general. So you could say, like, last year I basically had every plug on for the entirety of the year. This year I only turned it on when I needed to. And you can essentially just compare, like, how much you saved over those two years. Moomin says that he's quite pleased that the software he's working on helps people to save money and save carbon. He wasn't necessarily looking for a green job, but it does make him feel good to be involved in making a positive change for people and the environment. I got really lucky. You know, I managed to get a job straight out of uni, which was amazing. And then obviously something that helps the environment as well, which is kind of like a bonus. Especially like as a Muslim, you know, we try to like, we try to help as much as we can. So being able to do this is really nice to me. What are you thinking, Alex? I was thinking about what Moomin says about the helping the environment bit of his job is like a bonus. What do you think is his main motivation then? Um, I got the impression that apart from, obviously, you know, the the need to make a living, um, it's about doing something he enjoys and is good at. So when I was asking him about advice he could give to his peers, he says this. Find what you enjoy and just work towards it. So, you know, I also got the impression that he's quite motivated by learning new stuff and being invited to come up with ideas. So I guess that's about innovation and space to be creative. But of course, pay also really matters. And I think the problem companies like ours still have is that we struggle to retain workers like Moomin because the main aim of our organization is not to maximize profit. It's supporting as many people as possible to save carbon emissions. So we take business decisions in line with that aim. Like, for example, we make the software we produce, or Moomin produces in this case, um, open source, which means free to use and adapt rather than selling it. And that in turn means that we can then not compete with the kind of salaries that other companies offer people with Moomin's particular skill set. I see. 
Can we can we compete in other ways? Yeah, I think we can maybe. You know, climate change is like a massive all-encompassing problem and we start to physically understand the effects. I think this might lead to some sort of an excitement really f that people feel because they might be able to contribute to creating solutions for that. And, um, you know, like Carbon Co-op was maybe seen as a bunch of crusty activists <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> Meanwhile, Moomin actually used the words cool startup in our chat. Oh, really? Yeah, well, I think it's great to have Carbon Co-op on my CV, personally. Yeah. I think the real sad thing for me is, is that um, I I'm coming to the age to retire. So um, some of the most exciting bits of the industry I will miss. But um, I think we've left a good legacy for people to, to build on the network now was... Um, and to move that challenge forward. This is Mike. Um, he, he has been working in the electricity distribution industry for over 30 years. Wow. He works for Electricity Northwest, and I'm speaking to him and his colleague, Helen. Do you want to go first, Mike? Ready first. <laughs> Hi, my name's Helen Seagrave. I'm the Community Energy Manager for Electricity Northwest, and I've worked here for five years. Good morning. My name is Mike Taylor, uh, Head of Customer Engagement for Electricity Northwest, and I have worked here 20 years on the 2nd of December. Wow, 20 years with the same company. Yes, and his entire working life in the same sector. I asked Helen to explain in a nutshell what Electricity Northwest do. So Electricity Northwest is responsible for delivering electricity from the national grid to people's homes and businesses. So we own and operate all of the energy assets that are required to do that. So the wires, the substations, uh, it's our job to make sure people's power supply is maintained. And if there is a power cut to um, deal with it, but also if you want to connect to a a new kind of low carbon technology like a solar panel or a heat pump or an electric vehicle charging point you need to talk to us because you need to connect to our network so uh, electricity northwest uh, operate regionally we cover um cumbria lancashire and greater manchester we go a little bit into north yorkshire derbyshire and cheshire so it's largely the northwest region um Sorry, but I need to get a bit techy on on you for a moment because I think it's really amazing what um, ENW does, actually. So um, they make sure that our lights are on, which is really a difficult thing to do. Um, you know, you have to predict when people use electricity, you know, like the five o'clock kettle or the kettle at halftime, like in an all-important footy game. And then um, they balance that with what is generated because you have to keep the electricity flowing through the system at the same pressure or it cuts out. This is not an easy job. And of course, that's not just about our lights. You know, it's about computer system, hospital operations, databases, industry, trains, you name it. So um, I went to the control room once and it's just really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's such a, a massive task. How many people work at ENW? About 2,000. Um, nearly all of them local jobs. They've got good conditions as well. They are they are living wage employer and train people as apprentices in-house, I think 20 or 30 per year. We've got it all from um, joiners, painters, labourers, tech drawing people, uh, surveyors, horticulturalists, arborists, lawyers, 
finance people. Uh, and then we've got technical skilled people that do specific roles on the network as such. So fitters, jointers, linesmen, engineers that, that actually switch on and switch off the system. Because you can imagine electrical systems have to have a safe working practice. So a lot of training involved to be able to operate the network. Helen adds all the people that work in customer service as well. So making sure people are informed of work on the lines and protected during power cuts. And then also. And then there's the jobs like Mike and I do, which is talking to more sort of either communities or businesses or sort of more specialised customers about the projects that they want to do that involve connecting to our network. So would you say these are all green jobs? That's actually a very interesting question. Um, we haven't really touched on definitions of um, green jobs yet. So um, here's Helen's. So what is a green job? That's a very good question. I think it's anybody who is delivering something that um, delivers an environmental pr- improvement or a benefit. So it could be installing renewable energy. It could be working on the electricity grid if it's we're trying to um, help that renewable energy get connected. It could be anything to do with working in the wastewater treatment sector, for example, but also um, in the finance sector if you're trying to invest your money in um, non-fossil fuel businesses. So anything that's involved with trying to do something in a more environmentally friendly way. Ah, okay. So, in a way, jobs at Electricity Northwest are changing to become green over time as they are enabling the move from fossil fuel to renewables. Yeah. And decarbonizing the grid, as they call that move, um, also comes with decentralizing the grid. So, that means we generate energy in more and smaller generators all the way to like solar on your house, for example, or storing it at local level, like even, you know, in your electric vehicle, buttery can become a storage. Um, and again, with that kind of move um, come lots of interesting new technologies also in how we might be able to maybe trade energy at a local level. So if you're interested in this kind of stuff, listen back to our episode three on solar. Um, so Distribution companies play a massive role in making these kind of things possible. They are in charge of maintaining and updating the infrastructure and, of course, balancing demand and supply, which with renewables is a little more challenging. And they take care of every new connection to the grid. So you can imagine that the more complex the system gets, the more challenging it gets for the distributor. I think it's an exciting time to start working in the electricity industry because it's so critical to um, meeting our climate change targets in the UK that electricity stops producing carbon emissions but also it helps transport to uh, produce less emissions by powering electric vehicles and hopefully reduces emissions from people's homes by powering electric heating and heat pumps so it's a really exciting time to come and start working in the electricity industry because it's more complicated now and we need lots of developments and innovations to make the electricity grid function in the new in the new way. And Helen's job uh, is a completely new green job, which um, ENW created quite recently. My role was a new role created five years ago based on the demand from um, communities in the region who were asking my colleagues lots of questions that they didn't necessarily have the time or the 
the knowledge to answer. So my role was created to help speak to community energy groups in the region and work out as a business how we could best support them. So I would say it's definitely a green job created because of decarbonisation and the, the tr trying to reach our climate change targets. As a business, we've got a very clear commitment to lead the northwest to zero carbon. And um, as you know as well, like the support that ENW has been giving community energy groups in the region has been outstanding. I, we can say that from our own experience. They offer project funding, technical support, knowledge sharing workshops and many, many other things. Um, Helen also leads on the carbon literacy training within their own company. Uh, we have delivered carbon literacy training to all of our leadership team and we're going to roll it out to um, a lot of the rest of the business over the next five years. And it's very much um, a, a commitment that um, everybody in the business needs needs to get behind. And a lot of the people that I speak to, once they've been through the carbon literacy training and they really understand the problem and feel really empowered to do something about it, are very excited about working um, in the net zero space. Sounds like a really good job to get into for young people too. Yeah. Um, and so I was really surprised to hear from Mike and Helen that they're struggling with attracting talent. Mike thinks it's partly because one, not so many people know this work even exists because when it runs well, it's invisible, right? Yeah. So it's a bit like, you know, the swan with the paddling feet, but like, yeah. And, um, and the other part is that, um, I think it didn't really change um, that much since its inception. So there's just not very much innovation and excitement. Until recently, that is. Exactly. And that's what Mike talks about when he says he's kind of sad to retire. He says he has seen more change in the industry in the last five years than in the 30-odd years before that put together. And the challenges of the last years have brought this system much more to the forefront of public consciousness. Lots of social and technical innovation is needed to decarbonize the system in a way that all customers benefit. And it will be a great place for people who like to be creative and innovative. And maybe also do their bit for the planet. Helen and Mike seem to think so from their experience with apprentices. I think um, young people are keen to sort of make a difference as well. You know, how can they help in that arena? I think um, as an organisation, we need to try and grasp that as well. Mm, that's so interesting. I um, asked Helen what motivates her, and she says this. So I need to feel... Like I'm doing my bit for reducing carbon emissions, adapting to climate change, whatever it is we do, because otherwise the problem's just too much of a worry. But also I like helping people and those people that just need a little bit of support to shine. So before I joined Electricity Northwest, I worked helping small and medium-sized enterprises and businesses across the Northwest get into the new renewable energy supply chains. And now it's working with communities. The communities that we work with have got the ambition and the ideas to achieve. They just need a bit of our technical knowledge and know-how and industry understanding and a bit of help linking with each other so they can learn from each other to achieve their ambitions. I love my job because I get to help people and I feel like I'm doing something useful on a daily basis. And work with me. Yeah, and I get to work with Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so um, next I thought we could look at the construction um, 
world jobs and particularly at the jobs in retrofit and maintenance. Um, it connects quite well, I think, to the last episode you made. So um, how many new jobs did you say needed to be created in that area alone in the UK? It's somewhere in the region of 467,000 jobs, including hundreds of thousands of jobs in trade-oriented work like carpentry, plastering, joinery, things like that. Um, and I was told that um, things like bricklaying, plastering, painting, carpentry, they refer to as biblical skills. And I should ask you why. Um, Be because they've been around for thousands of years. Well, it's the original work, yeah. isn't it? Uh, yeah. Brick bricklaying, carpentry, stonemasonry, it's been around for thousands of years. Yeah. So that's why they call them biblical skills. <laughs> So Melissa's having a chat here um, with Mug and Orion, who you met in the last episode already. Mug is a site manager and Orion is an assistant site manager who's currently learning the retrofit trade specifically. So Alex, retrofit, what is it in a nutshell? I in think um, you quite loved the uh, definition Mug gave you last time. I did. It was brilliant. So in a nutshell, it means to fit something in retrospect new to an existing thing so bringing it up to scratch that could apply to anything like a car but in this context it applies to a house being refurbished brilliant and i think i learned in the last episode that retrofit is a very sensitive job that needs workers to know what they're doing and work under conditions that allow them to provide maximum quality because as mud says you know it only takes one little mistake and, and it can snowball into to a big problem. And that big problem affects somebody's home and well-being and that's a, a massive responsibility. I founded B4 Box uh, 13, 14 years ago and it was to address the skill shortages in the construction industry, which are particularly in the multi-skilled arena. This is Aileen, who founded B4 Box, which is the construction company that Mark and Orian work for. And by multi-skilled, she means construction workers with multiple skills, meaning they can do most of the jobs in a refurbishment. So the bricklaying, the plastering, the carpentry, and also then the decorating, for example. So it means less subcontracting, and it also has an effect on quality because there's no risk of confusion in the handover from job to job. Box have their own in-house college, and since 2008, they've taken on 1,400 apprentices. They are paid at least the living wage and learn partly in the classroom and partly on the job. B4Box employ four teachers who are also skilled construction workers, many who actually learned there themselves and then went on to do the qualification. This is Aileen again. So we teach people in groups of five or six every week a skill, an element of a skill in the classroom. The person who teaches that person the element of a skill then goes out with them that day or the day after and does that on site. So at the moment we have... 12 teams out in Manchester today doing that. So the teachers can fix any mistakes apprentices make on the job right away and the apprentice gets to actually learn by doing in a safe environment, which for refurbishment in particular is really important because every house, as we learned in the last episode, ages differently. And also, of course, every person learns differently. 
Some people you can tell, some people you have to show, but they are they are pick it yeah. up. And some people you have to just let them do it, you yeah, know, yeah. figure it out on their yeah. own because if you're there micromanaging them, it's just yeah. you end up doing it. Yeah. And just so, leave, them yeah. to, leave them to mess up and then once they've messed up, they won't do that yeah. again. <laughs> and um Matt says, You never stop learning anyway, and that's what he loves about working at Before Box, so that he's continuously challenged and supported uh in trying something new. What I like about B for Box is I do like the learning aspects. Like they challenge me, you know, they've pushed me. They want me to go in different directions. They want me to learn different things. That's what I like the most. I like the support, you know, every, like, you're not, you never stood still. You're always progressive. You know, they, they never just want to put you somewhere and leave you there. I didn't know anything about retrofit and I'm, I'm still learning. Um, but it's good. It's something challenging and yeah, it's, it pushes you when I ask Matt and Orianne about other things they value about their work, they say this. Well, it's a community company, so... Um, well, you started, started off in yeah. Salford, didn't it? And you're a yeah. Salford lad. Yes. And now I'm from round here, and it's sort of helping. Like, I know most of the people that when we go on to these jobs, I know them. So they're like, all right, all right. So it sort of, like, builds your standing yeah. in the community, yeah. which is nice. This is about trust and accountability in relation to the customers. You know, if, if you look at just the community you're in, it's important for the economy in that community. Yeah. Like 80% of 80 of the employees that work for us are Stockport residents, you yeah, know. Yeah, benefit, benefit, beneficiaries. Yeah, yeah you know, that we do. Yeah, and we, um, you know, we keep, so we, we tend to use... All our suppliers, stockport suppliers, so you know it, it keeps the money within that pool. Wherever we work, and we tend to keep to keep it there. And that's about local economy, um, something we have mentioned in past episodes quite a bit, and we'll also talk about in the next part of this episode. Um, there's a real opportunity that the energy transition can create local jobs and strengthen local supply chains. I have to say we have a very, really happy workforce, really work as a team, because it's almost like people can't believe that they will be fully paid during an apprentice. And every time we have an opportunity for one of those, we have 50-plus applicants. So we get some people who, oh, they're, they're just so grateful to be having real work with real training and real pay that they work really hard, actually, to make it work for them. Unfortunately, fully paid apprenticeships are not the norm in the construction industry today. And even when you come out of college, you can often end up working as a self-employed gig worker. But why is that? Um, I asked someone about that. Um, his name is Tom Jarman. He works in the construction world. I actually used to work on the client site, mostly for social housing and local authority, most of his working life. And now he actually advises those same clients um, on how they can do their bit to reach the decarbonisation targets. Um, one of the biggest problems is that um, the construction sector itself can be quite dysfunctional. So if you are in the supply chain, your experience of the construction chain is, in many cases, not going to be very positive. 
Tom says that most of the supply chain are what's called small to medium-sized enterprises or SMEs. They employ less than 250 people, but in reality, most are micro SMEs, so more likely to be like 10 people or less. And most of them won't deal directly with clients. They will deal with a main contractor that will be dealing with clients. And so by the time you get to the SME level, construction is quite an insecure place to work. There aren't particularly good margins, and a margin is just how much money you make at the end of every year to sustain your, yourself. But a margin is also important because the margin, the profit, is what you also decide what you do with. Are you going to put that into training your people? You're going to put it into training yourself. Are you going to put it into new, better equipment? So in a low margin industry, there's always an element of people struggling to survive. And because they're struggling to survive, they can't think ahead. It's much more difficult to develop a business. It's relatively easy to survive, but you don't think in terms of how your business grows. Tom says that a lot of responsibility actually lies with the clients. His experience is particularly with local authorities and social housing companies, but the principle he explains below um, would fit any bigger client, really. The fact is that most clients buy construction services at the lowest cost, and their key criteria is, is it compliant, rather than what sort of quality of service are we getting? In terms of how you do things differently, I mean, the, the, the chief problem is that unless clients do things differently, the supply chain are not going to expand. They're not going to invest in skills and training, and they're not going to invest in people. And they're certainly not going to invest in innovation. That makes a lot of sense, and it's a sad state of affairs. Yeah, Tom also points out that, um, you know, there are organizations doing things differently. Um, so they build strong long-term partnerships with the companies that they buy services from, for example, um, or they might make sure that those companies also put really good condition for the subcontractors in place. So it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> But um, the industry definitely needs more long-term thinking and clear national leadership so there's confidence in a secure pipeline of work so companies and individuals know that they can invest in training. This is where I did my college education for four years. Uh, another reason why I work here, to be fair. Uh, again, it's about me putting back into the into the local the local area and obviously investing in, in the youth and the people coming through this industry. This is Tom Lee. Um, he's the department head of building service engineering at Oldham College. My background is uh, I'm a plumber and gas engineer, uh, served an apprenticeship for a local authority uh, a good few years ago. Um, got the opportunity in 2008 to, to move into education and to help pass on my skills and knowledge to the, the next generation of plumber, gas engineer and construction operatives. And um, ultimately Tom um, came back to the college in Oldham where he did his education and now oversees training at the plumbing, electrical, gas and renewable technology departments. This is our renewable technology room. So this is where we do all the solar thermal, uh, solar PV, rainwater harvesting, grey water reuse, all that sort of renewable technology stuff. 
So this is the thing really that we're hoping over the next couple of years will really, really take off uh, in relation to people coming in, retraining. It's really brilliant at the college. Like they have all this like um, latest tech and, and stuff for people to like learn from with, you know. Um, Alden College at the moment attracts people from all over the Greater Manchester region, especially for this uh, adult evening provision where you can re or upskill to um, learn about sustainable technology. Oh, that sounds amazing. Because at the moment, like I say, not all colleges and training centres offer the full scope we offer. So we have had a, a wide range. I had no idea. Yeah, um, they also do like teaching alongside apprenticeships, of course, when you're in a company. And they also do a really early like A-level type programme. Um, and when we ask him how they prepare people for green jobs arising in the energy transition, he tells us that they integrate sustainability in the curriculum as a whole. So considering sustainable materials, renewable technology, but also, for example, how to produce less or no waste in the construction process itself, um, and also understanding standards and legislation. It doesn't matter if you're a joiner, a plumber, an electrician, you need that understanding, that, that core understanding of sustainability. And they also offer specialisation in how to, for example, install heat pumps or rainwater harvesting. So traditional plumbing and heating apprenticeship would at the back end of it normally do a gas route, whereas now they have got the option to do a green technology route. They can do rainwater harvesting unit at the end. They can do an air source or ground source one or they can pick that renewable technology uh, rather than traditional fossil fuels. But while we're speaking with Tom, I also detect some frustration he feels, especially now in the cost of living crisis. Things are not moving quickly enough for him. He knows firsthand what a different technology like rainwater harvesting, for example, or solar, would make to people's lives right now. And he feels there are not enough awareness raising and incentives to get the work going. It's having the knowledge, being able to install it, having the training centre there ready to be able to install these qualifications and, and get them all up and running. But unfortunately, like I say, the, the push is not there from, from the government side at the moment. Um, again, like I say, shame, because like I say, we could do, we could do a lot more. Um, and like I say, iron out a lot of the, the wider environmental issues that this country's facing at the moment. And Tom also thinks that more funding needs to be offered for reskilling. I do think they need to be looking at the, the grants and sort of the free training courses to train people up. So somebody's not going to come off their own back and spend £800 a head on a course. Yeah, there seems to be a lack of leadership, uh, showing through things like regulation, incentives, awareness building, and a real human potential there that we're not tapping into yet. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I and I think many other people wonder if maybe this is also due to something that might be like bigger um, than just regulation or policy or, um, you know, yeah, something that might be a bit more deep-seated. When I ask Aileen from B4Box about her definition of a green job, this is what she says. One of the things that's developed over the last few years, along with a greater understanding of the climate crisis, is a kind of devaluing of manual skills. It's shocking, really. And 
By which I mean care workers, nurses, and in this case, construction workers. The people you actually need. Just think about what, what, what happens if you just don't have a toilet or you don't have a shower or you can't heat your home. Who do you want to call? Not somebody who works in an office. You don't want somebody fixing your toilet from a Zoom call, if I can state the absolute obvious here. Alongside a greater understanding of the climate catastrophe going into the public arena has also been the cost of living crisis. And alongside that has been a devaluation of manual skills. If you reverse that and think, let's do our absolute best to avert climate catastrophe, and let's do our absolute best to pay manual workers what they deserve as the bedrock of so many things in our lives, the result would be what we are currently calling green jobs. But green jobs, she says, are just a word until we actually think who are the people who are going to be mending our homes. And how much do we think they're worth as a society as a whole? And how much training do they need? And here's the good news. The good news is that fully trained in that, and they've got a job for life, because this is going to be needed in perpetuity, because houses will start breaking down again, or systems will start breaking down again. And you then need the actual practical skills. And it's not myself personally, who's devalued those skills. And I'm not sure it's anybody's. It's been systemic. And over time that these skills have been devalued, I can't see a way of decarbonizing 29 million homes with smart thinking and technological thinking alone. It has to be people using their hands in situ, unless I'm highly mistaken, which I'm not. So what a joy it would be if those people then got paid well, because what it would mean is as well as society waking up to climate catastrophe, it's waking up to what skills you would like to value in the future. You've gone very quiet. Yeah, it's a lot to process. She touches on so many subjects there, like valuing people's work and skills, but also really valuing the act of maintenance and care. Mm. And equality and well-being. Yeah. I'm really glad that she asks the question of um, what we would like to value in the future. Mm. We mainly think of the climate catastrophe like as a massive challenge. And, you know, of course it is. But with crisis always comes the opportunity of changing what is not working and coming up with different approaches. And I don't just mean like new technologies. You know, I mean what we value and how we want to be with others, you know, including nature. It kind of comes up in every conversation we have, actually. So the final person we will hear from today is actually somebody you proposed. I should talk to Alex. Lucy. Yes. Thank you so much for making that contact. So Lucy brings yet another perspective to the question of work. I think the issue is that we, we, we look at these things through the lens of an economic model that is broken because it fails so many people. So currently people are struggling, desperately struggling, not because that they, they need to, but because the model that we've been working with is so damaging to the majority of people. 
So what Lucy is pointing out and what also Aileen was alluding to is that maybe the problem we encounter with climate change and with social inequality and with devaluing skills has a much deeper root problem. My name's Lucy Burke. I um, do lots of different things. Lucy's day job is a researcher and lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University in the field of cultural disability studies and medical humanities. And she's supporting her son who has autism and she's involved in disability activism. And Lucy is an active trade unionist. So I'm a national negotiator for the university and college union and the chair of the branch at Manchester Met. Lucy's really engaged with climate activism in Manchester as well. Um, I co-host a podcast with her called Green New Deal Media. And she has her fingers in lots of different pies. She's a writer, philosopher, campaigner, as you've mentioned, a negotiator. So a real champion on many fronts. Yeah. Um, there is a link to that amazing podcast in the show notes if people are interested to listen. Um, and Lucy says that there is a crossover between all of the different kind of work that she does. I think people matter. I think people in all our massive diversity, you know, and wild differences matter. And I'm really interested in trying to, I suppose, change things so that everyone has has access to opportunities and to things that are meaningful to us and, and that enable us to flourish. And I think that's really also linked to my interest in the environment and in climate, because we often think about climate change very, very negatively. And, and, you know, there are really good reasons for that. But she says that she also thinks that this massive, sticky, complex blob of a problem could maybe be an opportunity to reimagine our world into one that is based on much more even and equal allocation of resources. I think we need to just start to think differently and be brave enough to think differently about how we might organise things and how we might organise work and the sort of activities that we engage with. Lucy says that the fact that people work a lot doesn't necessarily mean they are more productive. And people work a lot and often still don't earn enough through that work to manage because wages are so low. And that our economy is propped up by the unrecognised work of carers and informal carers. If people had time and space and some recompense for doing that kind of work, I think that would make a massive difference. We judge economic success, Lucy says, by a very limited metrics, the uh, GDP. Alex, what does GDP stand for? So GDP is gross domestic product and basically means the total value of the goods and services that we produce as a country, essentially. Thank you. So Lucy says we could also measure success differently. But we could talk about well-being and flourishing and all those other things. We could have a different set of measures for what economic success looks like. Wouldn't that be amazing? Just imagine it. In the last quarter, our economy has been growing by 25%, measured by people in good health, equal opportunities in education and protection of biodiversity. <laughs> When I asked Lucy um, my obligatory question of what she thinks a green job is, she reels down the official description, but then she says that she thinks that that is maybe incomplete. I think care 
um, and caring should be viewed as green jobs. I mean, I think education should be. I think there's a, you know, there are lots of there are lots of jobs that are, are not destructive and that are beneficial. And I think care in particular is one of those. She says that in the future world, she imagines care and caring plays a major part. Uh, it's about understanding our obligations to each other, understanding our interdependence, enabling people to live uh, good lives. All of that, I think, should be at the centre of what we're sort of really arguing for in terms of a transition to a, a good greener society. So I suppose those things around sort of nurturing and mutuality and respect, which I think are so important. Lucy isn't just talking about the profession of caring, is she? No, you're right. I think she's talking about the much wider activity of it or the practice, but also, you know, the value and the mindset of care. And I think she is pointing out that we need to maybe ask ourselves more what kind of a world we would like to live in and what kind of values we might therefore want to put at the centre of this transition. This has gotten pretty deep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we should leave it there for today. Um, this episode has a second part to it which we hope we would love to listen to so um, thanks Alex thank you Brett be really good cheers thank you for listening there is a second part of this episode if you want to find out a bit more Power in the City is produced by Carbon Co-op and funded by the Electricity Northwest Powering Our Communities Fund Eclay Action Fund and UCL Grand Challenges this episode was written and produced by Britt Jurgensen and hosted by me, Alex King. Local research and interviews Melissa Kelly Shaw, sound design and post-production by Barry Ann. You can find a list of all episode contributors and lots of additional information and links in the show notes. 